0: whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. In the space of just over a decade, Stephen Cronk has built Maison Mirabeau, a global Provence rosé brand from nothing, using what he calls the OVP method, short for other people's vineyards. Listen to us chat about his lowly beginnings as a van driver in the wine trade, his decision to acquire an estate of his own, what makes the colour pink cool and why rosé should never be a pretentious drink. Hi, Stephen, how are you? I'm great, thanks, Tim. Good to see you. And you, uh, you're in the south of France, aren't you, lucky man?
1: Yeah, well, someone's going to live here. Yeah, so I'm at Domaine Mirabeau right now, just uh, just inland from Saint-Tropez, where they're confiscating all the big yachts from the Russians.
0: <laughs> I, I had a year in Avignon uh, when I was a student, which, and I still have very good memories of living in Provence. It's a fantastic place, isn't it? ah uh, it's, it's it's beautiful which which is
1: good and bad i mean it's beautiful because it's great to live here but it also means that everybody else who's made any money in their lives want to come and live here too so <laughs> we're competing with the rich and famous from around the world but it's yeah i'm,
0: I'm not complaining whatsoever. and that's never that's never easy is it really Listen, there's lots of stuff I want to ask you. Um, I, I'd forgotten that we actually studied together. Um, we studied in our beginning of journey in wine, but we might be talking about that at some point. Um, yeah. But just remind me, you know, whether wine was part of your life when you, when you were growing up. Did you ever imagine you'd end up doing what you're doing now?
1: Well, actually, it was never really part of my life. My family were never wine drinkers. My, my father enjoyed a pint and my mother enjoyed a, a G&T, um, never before lunchtime, honest. Um, but no, wine was never a part of my life. I, I got into wine when I was on my gap year in Australia. Um, I was working in Sydney for, for the best part of a year, and I decided to fly back out of Perth. And on the way, I hitchhiked across to uh, Adelaide.
0: That's a long way.
1: And uh, I actually took a it, – it's a long <laughs> way to hitchhike, but I made it. And um, And I got to, got to a bike shop in the Barossa Valley and I had the last bicycle in the bike shop, which was actually a tandem, even though I was by myself. So I cycled around the Barossa Valley on a tandem by myself, which of course meant that every Aussie at a T-junction would wind down the window of the car and say, hey, your mate's dropped off the back. Um, but uh, no, I just became fixated with the the wonderful landscapes of, of, of the vineyards there and, and of the wines themselves. So I basically decided that when I was to come back to, to the UK to study um, at Brighton Poly, as it was then, um, <laughs> that I'd go into the wine trade afterwards. But no, I never imagined...
0: I'd never imagined I'd end up owning my own vineyard. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, your first stint was was as a van driver. You know, you started at the bottom, didn't you? And then you set up your own import business uh, for for six years. I just wonder what you learned from that first spell in the wine trade, because as we'll hear in a minute, you had a break from wine, and before you came back, what did you learn from that first spell?
1: Well, I was uh, immediately hooked by the magic of the of the product, um, and so yeah, you're absolutely right. I started off. Um, I actually contacted my my uncle's wine merchant, who was a lovely guy called Ben Ellis, um, and he introduced me to a, a, an importer called Michael Morgan Limited, and they sort of said, all right, you can start driving the vans around. So I did that around London, doing deliveries, and um, Muscadet was the wine of the, the, wine of the moment then, um, and, and hopefully it'll come back again. But it's uh, yeah. So I did that for a year, then I did my WSET exams, and once I passed my higher certificate, they said, okay, go buy yourself a suit um, and start selling. So that was my sales training. Yeah. <laughs> that was as in depth as it went, um, and but no, I, 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 you know, I learned to love the product and and, and the people in the, in the trade. I, it was really mm-hmm. a special few years for me, but um, yeah, with the, with the confidence of youth uh, at the age of twenty four, I decided I, I could um, do my own thing, and I set up Stephen Cronk Fine Wines beautiful
0: name huh <laughs> <laughs> well that was pretty good i think it was original anyway um, what, what made you stop i mean did you just suddenly realize oh god this is tough to make money doing because you were selling coffee as well weren't you at the same time yes yes gosh you've, you've done your research Tim. well done um yeah so uh,
1: i i had a really a really amazing uh few years um but it was it was very linear in the sense that I had to you know, do, do the wine importation. I had to do the selling. I had to do the delivering. I had a, I had a warehouse in an old piano factory in Wandsworth, um, just by Wandsworth Roundabout. Not um, too far where was... I'm sitting
0: right now, in fact. Oh, right.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's already been knocked down and it's now a block of flats, I think. But, um, but yeah, so I used to sort of go selling in the morning and then uh, so wear a suit in the mornings and then go pick up my Renault 5 van and do deliveries in the afternoon in the afternoons and uh, it was a yeah it was a lot of fun really really tough but i realized it really was linear you know if i stopped working then the income would stop coming in and mm-hmm. yeah it's also debt collection and everything else so i i learned a huge amount but uh, uh, you know 4 years later no, 5 years later um i had a chat with my uncle who's also my my sort of business mentor and we just said okay let's let's call it a day it was good fun while it lasted um I, and i learned a lot I think it's really useful for me now um, to have to have learnt those things when I did in my twenties, before I had a family, before I had you mm. know a mortgage and that kind of thing. Mm. So it was, a, it was a a great experience, but also made me realise that there's there there isn't much that's romantic about being an entrepreneur. I think a lot of people um, kind of get frustrated in their in their jobs and think, oh, I'd love to have my own business, but it really is it really is tough. Um, it's and uh, it was, but like I say, it was a good good lesson to learn. And yeah, we we cut a lot as um, when I was thirty, and and went to, to my dream. Actually, at that stage, was to get a monthly paycheck. So it was the exact opposite
0: of many people who have a, a corporate world they're yearning to get out of. I was yearning to get into it. And and you went to work in, in telecoms, didn't you, for eleven years? Um, but had you never cured the wine bug in the sense? No, I mean that's one thing that I, I had
1: noticed as soon as I got into telecoms, where you know, no one really cares about the product in telecoms; it's the service, and and um, and the, it really lacked that bond, that cohesiveness. When when people aren't there through a shared passion for the product or the service, then uh, it was really really missing for me. Um, but you know, at that stage, this was in the in the mid '90s. You know, the, the telecom sector was booming. Um, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about business, about the corporate structure, about business cases, um, and and about people, and about I guess about myself as well. So it was a very good experience. Um, I met my future wife um, there, and uh, I, yeah, I basically told her that <laughs> I was feeling quite bullish when I met her. I think it was on my second or third day. I said one day, no, no, sorry, we 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 I was engaged. I said one day I want to pay off the mortgage and go go buy a vineyard. Um, and that was, and she was like, yeah, yeah, that'll never happen. A, you'll never buy pay off the mortgage and B, you'll certainly never go and buy a vineyard. Um, but it's something, it's funny cause what it actually, actually had inspired me to do it was soon after we got married and bought our first t- tiny townhouse in, in Richmond, in, 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 South London. Um, I went walking with some friends of mine in the South of France, um, near just north of mm. And we were walking around this beautiful old vineyard and he was this friend of mine was very nosy and he said how much do you just pay for your house in london and i told him he said wow so this vineyard that you've been ogling at for the last two hours is on the market for the same price yeah. and that was that was when i thought wow so if i could pay off the mortgage i could buy that vineyard in theory and that's really what you know, motivated i i
0: guess you know, motivated me to to take this direction in, in the wine trade Yeah. I mean, why Provence? I mean, you went there on holiday, but was it the place or could you already see that there was potential um, in terms of, you know, marketing opportunities and the branding opportunities?
1: Yes, I think there were quite a few reasons. I mean, yes, I I had been to Provence on holiday, but also my wife, um, her her family from Germany, and they used to have a house in Cannes that they used to drive down to every, every summer. But also, you know, this was my crazy, I guess, quite selfish ambition. To, to go into the wine trade and try and uh, build a wine business in 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 a, in a wine region, and to make the the the, the pill slightly sweeter, I had to choose a wine region that she would enjoy being in. It wasn't going to be a decision based on terroir what necessarily. It's going to be a decision based on whether her friends would come, friends and family would come visit her. <laughs> so Muscadet we was
0: out, is what you're saying, right? Muscadet, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, it was out, and um, yeah, but we did. Uh, we were we were so in love with the wines of Provence. uh anyway we were both big rosé fans and mm. so that you know those, those two factors plus the fact that you know we we um we just had a feeling that this was a a category that was on the up and up and lucky yeah I, I think so yeah yeah We yeah. you know we used yeah. to do, we used to love it. We it. I mean, those and now I talk about rosé being an all-year-round wine, but in those mm-hmm. days it was kind of when the sort of spring bank holidays came along. In fact, this time of year, when people started to um, uh, clean up their barbecues, I'd go down <laughs> to uh, to Waitrose and buy a buy a few bottles of Provence rosé, and and it felt like summer was really beginning. So yeah, I know I had the, we we had the bug for years.
0: There was a rosé season, wasn't it? I mean, I remember that you know that, that all the wine would show the rosés in the spring tasting, but they wouldn't show them in the winter tasting. Whereas now, obviously, they showing them in both. It's become such a big category. Really.
1: Yeah, well, even further than that, I mean, a lot of retailers would would, would clear their shelves of rosé mm. in the autumn, mm. um, whereas now it really is a, an all year round wine. Thankfully, mm. is it true you didn't speak a word of French? You must have spoke some, didn't you? No, I could say baguette and croissant. So uh, I got my bre- my breakfast. Yes. <laughs> Now I can say Spanish chocolate as well. So, no, it's uh, yeah. No, no, none of us none of us spoke any French. Um, my, my wife said she didn't speak any French, but she she's an amazing linguist, and and because she already had the German, it was very easy for, or much easier for her to pick it up. Yeah. But no, we, we didn't speak a word of French, and, and we were introduced to this village, Cotignac, um, by an American friend of mine who had said, because initially we thought when we moved to Provence, we moved to en provence put our children into international school because mm. uh, our two eldest children were seven and eight years old, and we thought, give them a soft landing, put them into an international school, mm. we'll be you know, also in a city so we feel more mm. connected than living mm. in a tiny rural village. And then I met a, a, an American guy who who really changed our lives in the sense that, that he said to me, you're getting it all wrong, Stephen. And if you want my advice, do it differently. And he was mm-hmm. a guy called Tom Bovet who just sold Chateau Miraval to, to Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Yeah. And he, he became a really pivotal guy for us. So he said, don't move to a city. Don't send your children to international school. Move to a village. Mm-hmm. Send them yeah. to, put them into a village school. Yeah. And he'll say, he actually said to me, they'll probably cry for the first year, but they'll thank you for the rest of their lives. And do you know what? Or was he right? He, he, was, he was, well, they only cried for six months and they, and they haven't started thanking me yet. <laughs> but hopefully that will come later. But I uh, know that, uh, that was a pivotal moment for us.
0: Yeah, very important. I mean, it's, I mean you took this unusual decision, at least in the wine world, to build a brand first rather than acquire a tractor, a property and a tractor. And, and sit on it, as it were, you know, it's, and usually, usually people do the other, do it the other way around. They fall in love with the property and think, oh, I want to make wine. Whereas you thought, I want to make wine, but you said, right, I'm not going to buy land yet. I'm going to build the brand first. And why did you do it that way around? That's a, a really good question. And
1: actually, again, it was uh, there was a pivotal moment where when I was planning this and I started to do records to the south of France, um, uh, I, I met a guy called Matthew Stubbs, who I'm sure you know, yeah. a master of wine. I do. Who at the time was based in the Doc And, and he, he said to me, okay, Stephen, I like your idea. I you know, was sort of you know, green eyed and bushy tailed and mm-hmm. thought, wow, I'm going to buy a vineyard. And he just didn't want to burst the bubble immediately, but he did let it down gently. And he said, Stephen, he said, there are three V's in the wine trade uh, viticulture, vinification, and vendre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and it. so, so growing, growing grapes, making wine, and then selling it. Instead, there are thousands and thousands of families who are very good farmers down here. Um, there are also very good winemakers down here as well. Oftentimes, where you know wine businesses let themselves down is when it comes to actually selling it. So, if you've got the skills of selling, why don't you sort of delink yourself from owning the whole supply chain? Use the small money you have, because basically, you know, this is a very expensive wine region. Mm. Um, and we didn't actually have enough capital to to buy a vineyard and make the changes and build a brand so we decided to uh to use the opv system of winemaking other people's vineyards and uh and so we yeah and we, we basically put our savings into you know paying the rent and and starting up mirabeau if you like as a brand whilst working with other people's vineyards and it's been it's been an amazing journey and and by far still it's by far the best way to to do it in 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 my view because you know obviously if you've got your own vineyard then you're going to have the um, variation that that mother nature gives you and i thought it's very important to try and if i was to create a, a effectively a wine brand that people would follow you know, rather i'd like to use the champagne model which is to give a, a really consistent style to so you know my first wine Mirabeau classic it's you know there is vintage variation of course but we try and blend it out by using um a, a broad range of vineyards from across the whole region so it really it really worked in our, in our favor and we're still even though we have our own vineyards now it's, it's still the majority of what we do
0: um, how many grape growers do, do you work with
1: Gosh, we work with about 14 calf cooperatives in the region, and some private growers as well. And then we work with a few others in in the longer dock. So if you were add those calf, so these are village cooperatives. They're really yeah. they're they're usually about 100 110 years old. They've got wonderful old concrete cellars. So really good, um, uh, good quality tanks, which are good against the, the um, against the heat. So. Um, and and between them, that's probably an average twenty or thirty growers per car cooperative. So hundreds of growers indirectly, mm. um, but directly with about
0: fourteen. And and do you buy wine or do you buy grapes or do you buy both?
1: At the moment, we're buying the nearly finished wine. So mm. we we certainly always used to go and starting to to taste when the wines were starting to ferment. Um, but now actually, we t- generally taste uh, post ferment when they've been um, fined off the off the uh, the, the heavy leaves so uh but yeah we but we i mean our wines are generally made from multiple um multiple producers so yeah. uh we yeah we we, we take we're tasting in, in october time hundreds and hundreds of tanks of wine right. to make our, our few bottles
0: so there's a queue now presumably for people to supply you i mean presumably it wasn't always like that was it
1: no well yeah in the be- do you know what if we were to do this now i think we wouldn't get in you know it's um we were knocking on doors and the doors were opening because um the majority of the rosé was being sold in France and and you know French rosé provence rosé um in in 2010 um was still relatively cheap you could buy a decent provence rosé in a, in a in a supermarket here in France for 3 or 4 euros um but now the price now the big guys are coming in so LVMH have have bought two big properties here well one big brand they bought whispering angel um, and uh, so, so the demand for these wines has become massive, and in fact, the the, the majority of the wines, uh, a vast amount of these wines, are now being exported. Um, so I think we were, we, yes, we were certainly lucky to get in on time, and we've been very strict about always, always doing what we say we're going to do, always picking up the wines on time, always paying pay, on time. Right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. And that was really interesting because obviously, 2020 with COVID. Um, you know, not everybody took that perspective and, and, but we were, we always, we, we said, okay, it's our problem. We need to sell those wines on even though obviously our markets, especially obviously the on-trade market, um, were, were hit really hard, but no, we took every single drop of wine. We paid on time. And so, yeah, I think there are people that do enjoy working with us because we are, we are like that.
0: Yeah, good payers and honest. Yeah, that's. I mean, you talked about the three V's that Matthew Stubbs told you about. You know, so selling uh, um, viticulture and vinification, and selling particular being the thing you needed to do. I just wonder, how do you start selling a wine from scratch? I mean, I know you had this big break with Waitrose, but you know, you, you have to make a certain amount of wine in your first vintage, and suddenly you think, help, it's going to buy the stuff, right? How do you knock on doors? How do you get get in? And how did your first career helped you to lose that fear in a sense? Well, I think, I mean, yes,
1: to, to some extent. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it made me realise that uh, it, it, I asked myself the question: Why would anyone want to buy from me? Um, and why, you know, what would make my wine different? Um, because you are absolutely, you know, you are absolutely right. There are six hundred or so wine estates here. Mm. Um, there are there are lots of négociants, the so people who buy for wines from other estates and or mm. other players down here who create their own labels. So there are probably, I would guess, two or three thousand Provence wine labels out there. Uh, well, and so when when i went to i, I and our, our first winemaker was um somebody else who i'm sure you know well angela muir
0: yeah absolutely yeah uh,
1: yeah. uh another master of wine she was yeah. amazing she was amazing because initially i thought that i would make my i do my own blending because uh, that's what it was in the early days it was blending you know w- working with his other calf cooperative and i i also uh I went to see her before we started and, and she was, she was amazing. You know, Angela, she was fantastic, but she's also very outspoken. And, and she, she said, um, so Stephen, who's doing a blending? And I said, well, I, I'll I'll do it, Angela. I mean, you know, I'm sure I can do it. She said, oh, Stevie, you, you know absolutely nothing about wine. Let me come and help. So, so I said, Angela, I can't, I can't afford you. You know, you're a consultant <laughs> and I'm sure you're very expensive. And she said, I didn't ask you about, about the money. And I, you know, it's not about that. If you pay my flights, I'll come and help you. Well, and she was she was amazing because she I was making so many mistakes that she, very... Mm. That, that's very kind. Yeah, obviously pointed out to me. It was it was so kind, and and, I, mm. and she's now moved to uh, to Cyprus, so I, I speak to her every so often and, and uh, you know, give her an update as to where we are. But yeah, without without her giving us that big break, we would never have gotten going. But but back to your question about how to stand out, it was you know I did have that perspective of yes, you know, why would they, anyone buy it from mm. me? And in fact, she helped me get my first meeting with the waitress wine buyer at the time. In fact, I was with him a couple of weeks ago. We've we've become friends. Um, and uh, I, I, I he, he said, okay, I'm very busy, Stephen. I'll give you half an hour. And I went to see him. That's a lot. That's a lot for a supermarket. That's a lot. Well, even yeah. the meeting was pretty amazing. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And he said, okay, nice bottle, looks pretty. Why should I buy it from you? And, I was, and I, I was geared up for this question. And I said, because I'll make this wine fly off your shelves. And because uh, I just read a book on social media, I figured I, I could say that. And <laughs> and, and he, I um, I don't think he was used to you know this is this was Christmas 2010, yeah. so whatever twelve years ago, or twelve and a half years ago, I I don't think he was used to wine producers saying that because usually it's only the big brands who've got a lot of money who could afford to advertise and sponsor events and 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 really invest in brands. But because social media was the big game changer in marketing. Mm. I felt confident that actually we could make it make it work. We could build up a following for the wine, and uh, he didn't believe me at all. But he did give me a listing. So he put Mirabeau Classic uh onto the bottom shelves. Uh, bottom shelves of about sixty stores. So of their three hundred or so wine stores, they put me. Um, they put me in the place where they usually exit brands, because <laughs> you know nobody walk, no, nobody walks into a wine store and. and and look, looks down at foot level <laughs> oh, for they're something feet, to yeah. inspire them um, so he said okay I'll, I'll give you a chance if you can send it from down there and I might believe you and uh, yeah because yeah, yeah, sure enough you know, we, we, we sold out really quickly hmm. uh, and now we're at eye level which is by level uh, and um, we're in all, all his stores and that gave us the first that really did give us a first big break. And now we're selling in, in more than 50 countries. And it's just, it's just, you know, we, we were very lucky with the timing,
0: but we've always had that mentality. Why should they buy from we, us? We can do it, yeah. But also we can do it. Yeah, exactly. But, you, I mean, it's interesting because you... You're talking about social media because you'd already had your own YouTube channel, uh, including that amazing thing where that went viral with you showing how to remove a cork without a corkscrew by putting it inside your shoe and bashing it against the wall. I mean, it's brilliant, and that had millions of views, didn't it? I mean, so had had that shown you the power of social media in a way? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, that was
1: that was funny. In fact, that was because I, I I knew that we had to use social media in the right way and and in those days instagram didn't exist so it was really it was really only youtube and and facebook um so i started to make these videos about the about wine because i wanted to demystify wine you know as you know very well tim a lot of people a lot of people drink wine and love wine but but a lot of them also feel quite intimidated about it and what you do so well is is communicate about wine and, and to demystify it and i think um, that's what I was trying to do with the video. So I was sort of doing, yeah, you know, and, and really, you know, the kind of asking the questions that people you know, want to know the answers to, but are too afraid to ask oftentimes, you know, why does a sommelier pour you such a drizzle of wine and why is he giving it to you to try it when he's the expert and why do people give you corks of smell? So I was kind of trying to answer all these questions.
0: And they're good questions. Yeah, well, there, there yeah. are
1: questions that I think people you know, find a little bit intimidating about the wine world. There is a sort of whole etiquette that not everybody understands uh, and it, it, it can be incomprehensible. In fact, that's, that's something that um, Sir John Hegarty uh, taught me through the video that, he, that I watched of him addressing the Institute of Masters of Wine at a symposium in Bordeaux um, yeah, Gosh, about 15 years ago, I guess. I was there. Like, and,
0: I met him there. He's become a very oh, good right. student, but I, I met him there because our flight, flights were cancelled together so we, t- we took another flight the next day and his driver from France came and picked us up in Toulouse and drove us to Bordeaux so I got to know him at the, sa- at the same time and he's, he's been on the podcast I mean he's an amazing man isn't he yeah no he's
1: he is he's mm-hmm. a legend he is a legend yeah. and and he yeah when he was talking to, to you lot he was saying yeah. you guys speak a language that's incomprehensible to anybody else outside the industry you know you must learn to to, to bring people in and become inclusive and, ed, and, and entertain as well as educate. And and I really took that on board and thought, yeah, you know, the wine trade can be a bit like that. And that was one of the great things about making a rosé wine, is it, it can't be pretentious. You know, it's something that's about the everyday, it's something you know very sort of um, social and, and open about rosé wine. And so, so I started making all these videos and that one that you're referring to with the how to open a bottle of wine <laughs> using a shoe. Um, was my 222nd video. But wow. The only one that, the only one you that struck gold, that. right? I struck gold, yeah. Well, <laughs> I was the only one that had more than about 50 views. Um, and yeah, it went it went ballistic. It was picked up by a, a few big uh, publications. And I think it's probably become the most viral or the most viewed wine video in the world. It's had Ever. over 100 million views. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, uh, so it's got about 12 million views on YouTube now, but it's been viewed over 100 it's a, million times. It's amazing, I think. Well, it's one yeah. of those things that it's kind of, um, everyone's been there. A bottle of wine, no corkscrew, how do I open it? And rather than trying to jam a, jam a knife into the top of it, yes. you know, there is another way of doing it. But uh, I've, um, yeah, I, I recommend a screw, I recommend a, either a screw cap or a corkscrew.
0: But was it your idea? Did you come up with the idea to bash the wall, bash the, the shoe against the wall?
1: No, sadly, I wish I could claim that as my own idea. That, a friend of mine had sent me a video of a French guy doing it. Um, and, and. But uh, but the guy had t- in his video had taken about four or five minutes to explain it, and I just kind of went out and started banging against the wall, and the camera really quickly. So I just set up my tripod, had a shave, and and uh, yeah, and and it's fifty seconds long. And I think because yeah, I think videos become more shareable when they when they're useful.
0: Yeah, um, I think and
1: and so that's I think that's why it went went viral. Yeah,
0: Let, let's talk a bit more about about Cote de Provence as a as a wine star, because it's it's really interesting. It's one of those rare wine categories that enjoys. A price premium, despite the fact you said it can't be pretentious. How do you explain the price premium? Because there aren't many wine categories. I mean, champagne is obviously one of them. I think New Zealand Sauvignon is as well, where people are prepared to pay more for a wine style. Why is that? Well, rosé is
1: actually quite a tough wine to make. It's quite an expensive wine to make. A lot of people think it's um, a very straightforward wine and so on, but it's it's a very technical wine to make in the winery. Um, and, and Provence, as a region, has been making investments in wineries for for the last 10, 15 years. It's also got its own um, uh, research institute, the Centre de, de Rosé. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really it's really you know, keeping that whole knowledge and education base growing. So it's, And it's the only wine region in the world that specializes in, in, in Rosé wine. So it's about 91% now, I think, of all wine from this region is Rosé. Um, it's become, for sure, the, the, the sort of global benchmark for dry rosé. I mean, I think initially people thought uh, that if it's pale, it's if it's pale, it's dry. Um, but that's obviously not necessarily true. That's about skin contact. But 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 if it was Provence, it was dry because you know we're obliged by Appalachian laws to ferment out all the sugar. So it is always dry and it is often super pale. So it's become it's become the the benchmark for, for that style of dry rose wine. I think the terroir really is unique. And when I go to uh, the wine shows like Provine, Dusseldorf, and I walk around the different halls, I'll see that virtually every wine region in the world now is making a looky likey, mm-hmm. you know, rose um, of that sort of color. But the the, the, the wine style this isn't there. So Provence really does have that u- uniqueness. The other thing is that, you know, this really is the place where the, the people who've made it in the world like to come and live and buy a house and buy a vineyard. So you know, it was obviously it's been famous for for, for hundreds of years, but it's been you know the bridge. If you look back to the sixties and seventies, Brigitte Bardot and and her 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 friends down in saint tropez and obviously more recently Brad Pitt and and last year George Clooney bought a place down here. So and there there are three British billionaires down here who all who all have vineyards. So it's, so it's a kind of, um, it's, it's a scarcity thing. Um, it's a supply and demand thing as well, because mm. I think we're going to see continued demand for Provence Rosé. And even though they're relaxing planting restrictions here, um, the, the the supply levels are actually staying quite flat. I think climate yeah. change is, is part of that reason. So, mm. um, so the supply and demand
0: dynamic is another factor. I mean, you've mentioned Whispering Angel, which is now, as you said, LVMH. And Miraval, which was uh, you met the guy who originally owned it, who sold it to Brangelina. That's been sold on again, I think, as far as I know. Um, it, it, have these other brands helped you, and vice versa, in a sense? You know, do the top brand owners talk to each other? Um, yes and no. So yes, yes, they've certainly helped um, Mirabeau.
1: I think uh, what what Sasha did with Whispering Angel has done with Whispering Angel um, has been a phenomenal success story. Mm. Um, and he's really put Provence Rosé on the map. I mean, before that, you know, people overseas had heard of um, Minuti perhaps or Domaine Um but the, he, you know, he created a, a wine brand with an English name or an American name mm. um, and, um, you yeah, took know, it, took it globally. So he really put Provence Rosé on the map and he got the timing absolutely right with that. So, yes, they, they, so the, yeah, and then obviously Brangelina coming along with Miraval, um, probably jumped on 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 Sasha's bandwagon, yeah. but but it's yeah the whole the whole region has become you know really famous, and it's but we don't talk that much. I Me, mean, well, my wife is on the board of the CIVP, so yeah. she talks to a lot of the other wine producers. You know, CIVP is as you know is the sort of the wine marketing body for the wines of Provence. So she's she knows all all the producers, but we don't sort of compare notes and, and have a quiet glass of rosé in a in cafe and give give, give inside track. <laughs> um, I think we're all just so busy uh, you know, running our businesses right now,
0: but it's definitely definitely a, a category that's risen together, as it were, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no, a- absolutely. Hmm. It's um, it's it's yeah, it's really it's been a phenomenal time. I mean, we're very lucky to have chosen Provence that we did because it's yeah. been a, a, gr- a great time. Yeah. And I think um, you know, other wine regions in the world are, are or sorry, other uh, other uh, countries around the world are, are sort of really clocking on to the fact that Provence really is special. I think there are many parallels with champagne as well i mentioned it earlier but i think people do um they understand the style of wine they follow brands quite strongly they're they're attached to a house style um and it's not a you know it's not often times that we talk about grape varieties in in yeah. a world like with non vintage champagne it's often mm. you know the house style and the image it's style so, so that's,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah exactly it's interesting i mean your, your branding which is extremely good but from the labels and certainly your instagram Posts are very pink focused, right? And I know you, you know, when you when you go along to shows, you have pink sofas and all those kind of things. But I mean, it made me remember that line in 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 Reservoir Dogs where steve Buscemi says, "I don't want to be Mister Pink. I want to be Mister Black." You know? And uh, can pink be cool? I mean, have you made pink cool in a way?
1: Well, I, I think pink has become pink has certainly become a lot a lot um a, a lot cooler than it than, than it, was it was back then. Whenever that is, the nineties. I think, mm. uh, yeah, I, I think it's sort of. Uh, yeah, people are less mature now about the colour. Um, I think people are, you know, well, I'm sure you, Tim, you've got a few pink shirts in your closet. <laughs> I've got um, lots. I might even wear one tonight, yeah. actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you know, I, I think uh, no, it's, certainly it's cooler than it cooler than it was. Uh, and yeah, you know, now there are, there are rugby teams wearing pink. Um, mm. There are airlines coloured pink. It's, <laughs> it's definitely uh, it's definitely a la mode.
0: Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your estate, because in 2019, you said you'd never buy an estate or you didn't have the money at the, at the beginning to buy an estate and do the brand. You bought this, this estate and, and you made the first wine, La Reserve, um, and you're selling it at a higher price. How do you go about selling an ultra premium rosé? Because you said that you know rosé can't be pretentious, um, but it can, be, it can have levels of price in a sense
1: yes i think it's very important that we as the producers here in provence you know acknowledge the fact that you know these wines are are getting you know slightly more expensive every year i mean and that's going to happen obviously now with with the inflation we're all seeing with with dry goods and so on but i think it's also really important for us to you know to take this the the sort of glass ceiling off you know where where can the style of rosé go to um Mm -hmm. i think sasha again did a a great job with Mm -hmm. with that with his wine making and we, we wanted to make an estate wine that was different from the rest of our wines um, was more gastronomic um, and had more complexity so we knew we wanted to bring oak in at some point but we didn't want to make an oaky rose wine um, so we I mean uh, the, our estate here is is um, more or less 15 hectares of, of, of vine so we could we potentially could make 60 or 70 thousand bottles in a good year if if, if um, if if the weather's good and we have a a good a good vintage, mm-hmm. um, and we made three thousand bottles of our estate okay. wine, yeah, yeah, we wanted to just take the best from the best mm-hmm. parcels, and we used three different uh, four hundred liter barrels from from three different mm-hmm. forests to bring out different nuances, and we ended up blending it back in with um, some wines that have been um, fermented mm-hmm. in steel, and and yeah, we just we just ended up with a wine that I think is is uh, is absolutely glorious. I'm so proud of it, uh, and. But it is. It has, like I say, it has complexity and, and structure uh, and to it that that a, a regular Provence wine just doesn't have. Doesn't have. And yeah, and yeah but it, it, it's um, and it's a hand sell. I mean, we, with such small volume, you know, we we can't take it to a supermarket, for example, because they would just sell out. I mean, that's one of the dilemmas of of, of, um, of the wine business. Is you, it's not like. Uh, Making a, a vodka or a cola, which you can just—it's mm. dial up and down the production. And you can very easily sell out, and once it's gone, it's gone. So we were selling it to independent stores and to smaller restaurants. um And actually, Harrods took it as well.
0: Okay, and I took
1: it into—I'd never tried to sell to Harrods. I know the buyer there, but i for 12 years I resisted <laughs> knocking on her door. And eventually, I took it in to see her about a year ago, and and um, I said, "Come on, come on, tr- try it." Opened up now, and she said, "But it's warm." I said, exactly, try it warm, because, you know, as, as you know, you see all the all the different um, characteristics of a wine when it's at room temperature, and, and um, she said, wow, that is amazing. And it, it is, I'm really proud of it. And that's, but yeah, it's basically hand-selling it to selected
0: establishments. Um, and you've also done a Mirabeau Gin, haven't you? Again, fantastic package. Um, just wonder, you know, what next? Are there other brand extensions uh, in the wings? We've all got ideas, and my team hate it when I, when I say, "Hey, I've got an idea."
1: And they all sort of put their head in their hands and and, and, uh, and, and roll their eyes. So um, yeah, Tim, come on, what's not to like? It's, if it's if it's made of grapes and it's pink, then I'll, I'll um, it's, it's, it will have crossed my mind.
0: Could you do a vermouth?
1: Um, funny you should say that. Ah. We we were, we actually um, because because of the COVID last year, we ended up with um, some wine that had been that we bought too much. Uh, we bought too much into the UK. I thought, what are we going to do with this wine that's, that's you know, get, you know getting, getting a little bit on on a bit? Um, so we decided to make a Vermouth, uh, just oh. a, a small, you know, tiny production, like 180 bottles at a time. Mm. But um, it's, it's a Rosé Vermouth and it's absolutely gorgeous. And that's given, us, given me some more ideas as to where we could take it. But yeah, there are always ideas, but we, we don't try it. We're not trying to, you know, just jump on any old bandwagon. It's got to be something that we believe in and something that we love and would love to drink. But yeah, we've all got ideas. And
0: does does it have to have a Provence connection, or could you make a a champagne, for example?
1: No, I think um, I I think for us it has to have a Provence connection.
0: Yeah, I think that Uh, makes sense. I think
1: think we've got such you know we're sitting really in you know one of the most famous wine regions in the world, Mm. um, one of the most beautiful wine regions. And as well as having you know great great vineyards here as well, we've got some uh, tremendous botanicals. You know, we've got the perfume industry just down the road here in Grasse. You know, so we have good point. All these different profiles to, um, to 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 work with. So now I think it has to be either Riviera or Provence based. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean you've got this this amazing business which is sort of growing exponentially. Uh, is it all consuming? Do you have time to do anything else? Not not not, not an awful lot, I see. <laughs> but um, but then I actually I was
1: I was talking to a friend of mine about it recently, and he and he said, so Stephen, if you were to stop doing this and you know, put your feet up, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd probably have a glass of rosé and want to look at vines. And that's what I can do here. So <laughs> I, I think, uh, as, as, uh, yeah, it, it is, um, is all-consuming, but uh, but mm. we love it. You know? And I think, uh, you know, we've got a lot to be grateful for, mm. that, you know, we've been lucky enough to, to, to move to this beautiful region and to make wine here.
0: And so uh, we absolutely love it. So could you see yourself selling up and doing something else, or do you think you're going to stay with wine now? i i i'm not i can't predict
1: the future i mean my, my children are still a little bit young to be thinking about getting into the booze business so they're in that uh, my two others are in the, in the in the in their early 20s in the university i'm trying to sort of um wave the carrot a little bit saying here don't, don't you think this is than living in provol living in london but um yeah we'll, we'll have to see but um, certainly they they're, they're they're but i think the problem is they look at how hard we work yeah they're Going, oh i don't want that i want to go and get a job yeah. so, so we'll see, but we we're, you know, we we love doing
0: it for the time being. Yeah, I mean it's funny that that Gary Player thing, the golfer, where he once said, you know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And I think people can see that you know you you've made some right decisions at the right time, some of which have been lucky, but you've put in the work. You know th- that you're still working incredibly hard um, to yeah. achieve what you've achieved. Really. Yeah, I know we have,
1: we, we we do, but like I say, you know, I'm just, well I think. Not only are we very lucky to to, to have moved here and and, and you know, to have made a, a reasonable job of it, I'm also grateful that I knew what I wanted to do. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, you know, I was in my mid forties. A lot of people go through that classic midlife crisis time, and they buy a Harley Davidson know, or something,
0: or exactly, or <laughs> get Harvest a tattoo, or, or, or exactly,
1: or a pointy fast car or whatever. But but we knew. I knew and I was very lucky that my wife um was had the patience and trust that we would make this work, but I knew what I wanted to do so and and for that i'm I'm so grateful because a lot of people want to change, but they don't know what they want to change
0: too yeah.
1: um so you know that was super lucky, so you know i i I have to pinch myself sometimes that this is this is this is for real.
0: I think that's a very good note on which to stop. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been fascinating talking to you about the whole brand and just your, 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 your amazing experience doing it, really. Uh, and many congratulations on what you've achieved so far. And I'm looking forward to the Vermouth. You'll be the first to try it, Tim. It's been <laughs> lovely you. talking to you. See you, Stephen.
1: Bye. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye.
0: What a fascinating story. And you can see why Stephen has done so well. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Lenz Moser from Austria. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.